You listen to Banter Radio. I'm Will Sherwin, and on this episode, I interview Dr. Peggy Sachs from Middlebury, Vermont. We discuss her history with narrative therapy, developing community, and her projects with reauthoringteaching.com, and more. Enjoy. Thanks, Peggy, so much for joining me here in Berkeley. It's my pleasure to be here with you. You know, I had some ideas of stuff I wanted to ask you and talk about. And I was looking at my notes, and a lot of it is around, you know, community. And you had this you know, article you wrote, Reclaiming Community Out of Personal Catastrophe, Communal Practices That Build on Naturally Sustaining Webs, that you wrote in 2013. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the collaborative salon. And... Just the the place in, of community and in therapy and in the narrative community, ways you can build on that. Are there directions you'd like to go in this conversation? Well, first, let me say thank you, Will, for inviting me to be in this conversation with you. And as you were telling me when we were in the kitchen talking before turning on the mic and starting the, the interview that um, I wish someone could interview you about your work and uh, the path that you're on as it builds over time and realizing that a real dream come true and I just have this sense that it's true for you too is that we could use our skills our interviewing skills and our curiosity about people's lives to learn about each other and what keeps us going and and to be asking some of those curious questions of each other and behind that for me is a just a concern that in this 21st century fast-paced intense life that we all seem to be living that it it seems to be harder to take pauses like this so i really thank you for that and uh, thank you for expressing that curiosity to learn more about what it is that i'm doing and kind of what some of the commitments are that are uh, behind that well maybe a place to start would be i don't really know so much about the you know history of both community in your life but also narrative therapy in your life and if you could kind of introduce us to some of that history I'd be happy to. We have something in common, Will. You you had mentioned to me that you worked before as an early childhood mental health consultant. And my beginnings in human service work were also working with families with small children. For me, it was birth to three, and it was in British Columbia in the mid-70s. And I just completely fell in love with that work. And Uh, have described myself to others as learning most of what I know uh, at kitchen tables and living room floors, primarily with mothers then. I think if I did the same work now, fathers would be much more involved. And they're babies. Um, And these were babies that had developmental uh, disabilities or delays of some kind. 
And I learned very quickly that families know best and that we have something to offer, but what we have to offer is really to be of service um, and to put that knowledge um, and those skills at service of others. And that led me to a kind of windy path uh, to discover narrative therapy 15 years later, maybe, in the late 80s, after I had become a family therapist and moved to Vermont and worked at a parent-child center where I realized as my own children were uh, getting older, they were no longer birth to three, that I was not only interested in birth to three. And as I entered a community where there was a lot going on in addition to developmental delays, there was poverty, um, substance abuse, addiction, family violence, mental health issues, and that I went back to school then and uh, became a uh, I studied marriage and family therapy. And, um, and then I moved over to the Community Mental Health Center in my community, also a very innovative place. Uh, we had Tom Anderson with the Reflecting Team come consult with us. I was very influenced by the Brattleboro Family Institute in southern Vermont, uh, Dario Lusardi and Bill Lax in particular, and Lynn Hoffman became an important mentor to me. I went through the AAMFT approved supervisor training and used to go down and meet with her once a month. She's still someone who I think very, very highly of in the article that you mentioned. She um, is prominent in that. So that was sort of some of my beginnings when I discovered family therapy. It reminded me a lot of what I had discovered in the parent movement in early intervention. And then when I discovered narrative therapy, there was a lot that felt like just coming home again. Similar values to what I had discovered um, in working with families birth to three. Well, thank you. I mean, your description of, of being in the kitchen with these families makes me think about uh, this phrase you have in the, in the article of neighborly ways of being and communal practices as having therapeutic value. And I think about that, you know, in my work with the shelter and these preschools, about all the kind of communal practices that are out there that I could see being really helpful that aren't sort of theorized in therapy models. One of the things that drew me to narrative therapy was that it wasn't drawing a small circle and saying only these practices that we've written about in our writings are what helps people and is valuable. That there are a whole field of practices that are out there that may be really important to uplift and that they can get short shrift if all we're getting is what the practices therapists have identified as valuable. And even this sort of shift from like an individual way of practicing to a communal way of practicing and a neighborly way of practicing is kind of evocative for me of a shift I'm interested in. You know, so much of therapy is built on you're seeing one person in a, in a private room and you don't tell anyone else in the community about what you talked about. But, you know, hearing about, like, Dulwich Center talks about collective narrative practice as, like, a, a direction people are going in more. Is that is that something you you see as uh, a shift in your work from the early days to these looking out for these neighborly or, or communal ways of, of working? Well, I think we're very much on the same page. As you were just talking, I felt like I could finish your sentences or um, and wanted to ask you more about 
you know, what for you have been these communal practices that, um, that really stand out. So let's make sure to go back to that too. A, a big yes, first of all, to what you said about um, realizing that the, the, the need to uh, uplift the communal practices, to um, theorize, create more theory around them. I think psychotherapy has done a good job of identifying more intrapsychic types of healing that can happen and through conversation in confidential ways. And we certainly in this era when there's so much social media and people's lives seem to have such complexity and interconnectedness with others, I would never want to forget the importance of having those private moments. Uh, to really think together with someone else, to feel with someone, uh, to review one's life um, in a very private, personal way. And I feel like that's kind of covered. You know, other people have been doing that work. Um, and also, I, I am a believer in the unconscious. I think the unconscious is important, and I love all the creative energy that comes out of that. And at the same time, there's, there's more that needs to be storied and theorized about. And when I look at how people, in my experiences, find their way out of, say, as in that article, real personal catastrophes or just through the difficulties that so many of us experience, we take turns experiencing in our lives, it's not only through reflection and working things through internally, a lot happens by feeling warmed by human kindness, by a sense of belonging and connectedness to others, by a sense that people get it, that you're not just alone, but you're, you're a pioneer. I, I really believe we're all pioneers and making discoveries as we go. And at the same time, uh, there's a lot that other people have also experienced that, that you can, we can learn from. Um, and if we link arms, there's that wonderful African saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I keep discovering that again and again. You know, when I was first getting involved in narrative therapy, I didn't, they didn't teach it at graduate school where I was. Uh, I, I didn't know about it until I was taking the licensing exam for marriage and family therapy, and I really liked the questions. And I ran into Elijah Nella, um, and we started meeting uh, in cafes every week and discussing articles and reading books together. You know, I was the only one in my team where I was working who was doing narrative therapy. And this is something I've heard about from a lot of interns, this feeling of, they're kind of doing it in relatively isolated contexts. You know, the working agencies are the only person doing narrative. They might have a supervisor who's 
curious to actively hostile. I think about that, you know, we're valuing community and the kind of connections that come from community, but I keep hearing the story of therapists having to work in in relative isolation. It's taken me a while to build the kind of thick rhizome of people that I can talk with and and go to when I tried something and it didn't work so well and they kind of nurse my wounds with them or whatever or share what, what did work and thicken that. Especially with interns who are working in really challenging situations um, and don't have an easy community support. It's something I think about, you know, and I think about how important it was for me to develop that, how it's still an active practice of keeping this community alive. You know, from the work you do in Vermont around, you know, the narrative camp and refreshing the spirit of the work, do you hear those kind of stories that people love the narrative therapy and it's and it's a challenge to find like a thick community? Absolutely. Listening to you now, that phrase comes to my mind about building naturally sustaining webs of support and or networks of support. And I love the sense that the same kinds of focus in the therapy room is happening in my own personal life and also um, in building a professional community as well. It's kind of like finding your tribe. And in a similar way, when uh, if somebody has a challenge that they're facing in their lives, and I always feel a, we, we breathe together when we realize someone's finding their tribe. And um, that may be through finding other mothers of children who have uh, special needs of some kind. And it also might be because of discovering a, um, a, an approach to working that really resonates. Yes, uh, I, I want to be very careful about uh, not being in a club that feels exclusive because I feel very sensitive to, to that and how unfortunately when you do belong, inevitably that happens in some way. And I do have a strong sense of, of, of having found community with other people who are drawn to these kinds of ways of working and these ideas. Maybe would it, would it make sense to tell you a little bit about Vermont and yeah. how that came to be? Yeah. Anything in particular you, you'd like me to focus on there? Well, maybe start with, were there any like first steps or initiatives? Like, were there enough people locally that it was easy to do a community or did you start to search more internationally and um, what were the first steps towards that? Yeah. Gosh, of course, you can never say the really first steps, but but early earlier steps. When I worked in uh, counseling service of Addison County, it was at a time, the late 80s, I left in 92 to go out on my own. It was really thriving, and we did so much, you know, uh, cross-training of each other. And it was just, I had that sense of a, of a community of, of ideas and practices. And when I went out on my own, I learned very quickly that that particular community, it it's kind of stays sticks to itself because it's it, it's its own world and it needs to be. Even when I trace it earlier, when I was in the world the world of families with babies with with some kinds of developmental issues, uh, there was such a strong sense of community. My very first mentor, Dana Brittleston, is in. 
BC, uh, British Columbia, and she she taught me that early on, get the community going. She was the uh, provincial advisor um, to infant programs, and we would meet um, once a month, or we would have gatherings, an institute every year, so I think she influenced me there. And then, of course, it's hard now to imagine back before we had the internet, but we did. <laughs> There was that time where it was just through letters and, and phone calls from phone booths or, you know, that sort of thing. When I discovered narrative therapy and that Michael White used to come through New England and uh, he came to Burlington, Vermont, he came to Boston, he came to Portland, Maine, and I would go to his workshops all the time. And there was a cluster of people who, um, who would gather then and you get to know and I started to realize, wow, this is not only these are not only ideas and practices that I can learn so much from, but the people started to become my friends, you know, that some of my dearest friends in the world, I started to meet through this narrative community. And then when Michael died in 2008, uh, as for so many of us uh, throughout the world, it was just such devastating news. It was, it, it just, it, it was, um, it was just a profound loss. And among other things, I realized that it took a few months to realize, wow, you know, remembering practices aside, he's really not coming back to, in the flesh to, uh, to give workshops. And not only in terms of the ideas and the practices to keep generating new um, and to keep freshening up, but um, to be gathering in community that um, we would not, uh, we, we, we're going to have to do it ourselves. So, um, so that's sort of some of the earlier steps that happened. Would you say that was a shift that after he died and you realized he wasn't coming back and that you had to do it yourself, that you started to be like more active in developing in response kind of? Yes, I think so. It's, it's, it is. I, I've always loved that Kierkegaard quote, life is lived forward yet understood backward. I can see this much more clearly now. I remember a moment I was cycling in the Laurentians with my husband, Shell, and it was the summer after Michael died. And when you cycle, you know, there are these long kind of beautiful, just your mind clears, and then sometimes something will rise up. Not always, but sometimes what, what rises up is exactly what's been just like trying to push through, you know. I've learned so much working for institutions or organizations like Parent-Child Center or Community Mental Health or even the universities, but I felt this yearning for freedom. And the thing that popped up was, first of all, Michael's not coming back. I live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. We all need refreshment. We need these pauses that we can offer. And maybe I can use some technology to help. And I'll start a study group, an online study group, because so much of the technology had become open source by then. I didn't even need a university system to do it on. So that's when the narrative practice and collaborative inquiry study group began. I could not find what I was looking for locally or even in Vermont. I had to look beyond 
And so I thought, let's get together and let's use this time not only to share our grief for losing Michael, but put it into action to be studying his earlier works. The beginnings began with Michael and uh, along the way discovered um, uh, David's magic as well. So when I was up in a Vancouver conference in TC10, there was an intern who asked Stephen Madigan, you know, I'm just getting new to this work. It's kind of daunting. Like, how would you recommend I get better? And it's interesting what he said. He didn't say, here's a reading list or go to more trainings or work, work through your own narrative before you can ever help anybody else. He said, get a buddy, get 10 buddies. Don't try to do this work yourself. You'll burn out. And I thought about that because I had, at the time, I, I feel like I have two narrative buddies. And what would it be like if I have... 10 narrative buddies and and instead of you know focusing on improving myself or working through my issues as much like what if I just try to increase my network and see what happens but it's a challenge to develop community locally uh, Julia Wallace and I started having monthly narrative salons at her place and people would have to commute from the East Bay to San Francisco on a weeknight it would take them like an hour and sometimes be really well attended sometimes not well attended and so I started thinking about well, what, what could we do wider than the Bay Area, you know, reach out with the Internet and, and connect a little more broadly than the Bay Area? I wish it could be easy locally, you know. I wish we could have these face-to-face -face meetings more regularly and more easily, and it didn't require people to have to do these long commutes. So it got me exploring building community online. That's how I found the collaborative salon and seeing that you were doing the video chats and getting to talk to people in different parts of the world and starting to email some people from, from that I met on the Collaborative Salon it gives me that sense of this thicker, thicker network. I know you talked about one of your favorite things to do is, is connecting people with others, <laughs> like a shared purpose. So I wanted to pass that on. You know, I, so I guess what I feel like I do now is both. I work on both locally, building community and online. But I would love that if people are interested in narrative therapy, there's a way for them to develop this sense of community and narrative buddies and how do we make that easier for people? I, mean, I met with this guy last Friday. I could tell he really cares about narrative therapy. And just wanting it to be easy to have narrative buddies, who, especially people who've done you know, similar specific work that you've done. And how do we in the narrative community make that possible for people who they just got into narrative therapy a year ago and they're really excited about it, but their context isn't as supportive as they'd like. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Lots of thoughts. <laughs> As you were talking, I was thinking of something that someone who's consulting with me taught me. She called it the seven-year rule. And she said that 
in her ex life experience, it takes about seven years for something to really gel. And when you set out with one thing, this is me now speaking, I don't know if she would, I think she'd agree with this too. You never know, like you plant a lot of seeds and you go in a lot of directions and you just don't know what's going to take root. It's there's something about that perseverance that makes a difference. I think there's a certain, like it's a, it's a bit of science, but also there's just something that goes on that why, a bit of magic, you know, why something sticks and something doesn't. And in some way that reminds me of these kinds of conversations we have with people and, you know, in, in therapeutic context too. We, we never quite know what will, what will stick. So having said all that, it's been several years since I started, you know, this narrative uh, online study group and it's morphed into something that has a solidity that I feel really happy about. I think what has helped is it needs someone, uh, these kinds of efforts need someone with the tenacity to just keep it going. Take it seriously, but not too seriously. <laughs> because um, there's a lot of mistakes along the way. There's a lot of things um, to let go of, but then um, there are other things that get rooted. For example, we're now about to launch in the next week is our hope, a whole new website we have let go of our online study group and instead created uh, online courses. And the courses each have their own separate course forum, like a conversation forum. But the main thing that really connects people is, uh, as you said, the video chats or the, the real-time meetings on a cloud. We have a, a featured guest and we chose this technology, Zoom, and um, it's so brilliant because we can all be on the screen at the same time. We can shift over to screen share and tell whoever is presenting for about a 15-minute presentation, kind of like a starter dough for the conversation for everyone else. And uh, we meet the third Sunday of the month at 5 o'clock uh, New York time, 2 o'clock your time. We actually can get people in Adelaide or in, uh, you know, in Auckland, and it's a little hard for Europe. And uh, we've had some people from uh, India who, who get on in the middle of the night. Um, so it's, it's really quite a thrill. But back when we started, I couldn't have imagined that. I didn't even know it could possibly exist. David Epson gave me a good question to ask teachers, so I'm going to ask it to you. Like, what would you say you kind of aspire to do in your work with online community or community in general? It's a great question. I often think about Michael and his passing and how uh, he left us quite a challenge. And that is not only to kind of stay true to uh, what he passed on, um, but to keep narrative uh, ideas and practices growing and changing and uh, with that foundation. And I think of what David brings in, since you've evoked him here, of that incredible curiosity and inventiveness in the work. So when I put those two together and I think about what I want in creating these, this learning community, 
is a place where we can be keeping narrative practice alive and well and thriving and where people can bring in their own unique talents and share them with each other and find that way of not getting stale but the reverse getting invigorated to continue to to really develop whatever it is that we are uniquely here to do how do you think other people could help you with your aspirations with online community like you know all these people who are at the video chat and myself like how could how could we help you with, with what you're doing well thank you for that question I would not have done or be doing this if it wasn't a labor of love. Actually, on another cycling trip, this time with narrative buddies here from uh, the Bay Area and Marin County, um, and we went to Lake Tahoe and we were cycling for several days. And at the end of the trip, or end of one day, I turned to them and said, Hey, I'm thinking of making reauthoring teaching into a nonprofit. Uh, would you be on my board of directors? So, um, and they all said yes. So we now are nonprofit, and uh, we're a 501c3. So it, people can make tax-deductible donations, people can volunteer their time, and we can have graduate students. Um, so I just wanted to add those three kind of contexts. Um, or uh, university teachers who want to in some way use what we're doing in research. So we're just beginning to explore those things. Over the last few months, I've been behind the scenes working on preparations for this big launch that we're doing next week. It's reauthoringteaching.com is our website. So whenever it is that you put this out, people can come see. It would make me very happy to feel that people were stepping up in whatever way, whatever skills they have to offer. I mean, for example, one of the things that I have always thought is, I love radio. I love listening to podcasts. If only there could be a radio show, a narrative radio show or podcasts. And then I thought, oh, wow, Will's doing it. That's great. So maybe we can uh, link arms and kind of, you know, support each other to get that out there. So we had last summer a yearly, we're calling it narrative camp, and it's in June, and it's in Vermont. And uh, this year, uh, in June 2016, Maggie Carey is coming back. She was there two years ago. We just had Larry Zucker from uh, L.A. gave a workshop uh, developing account-ability couples. And Sue Ellen Hempkin, who gave a wonderful uh, workshop on uh, the art of narrative psychiatry. So we have these gatherings, and many of us live on the lake, Lake Champlain. Um, We share some housing, and uh, people write to me, and I do my best to get people a house right by the lake. If there's a group that wants to come, more and more, uh, really encouraging local groups to come and use it as a retreat time, too. We kayak, we hike, we walk, we bike. Uh, We have communal meals together, but people can always say, no, I just want to stay back and be with my buddies. Spend a lot of time on the porch, hanging out in rocking chairs, looking at the uh, water, talking. 
this last year, I had an exchange and we had a, a filmmaker with us and she filmed some of our conversations, which we've started a YouTube channel, uh, just a reauthoring teaching YouTube channel and a project that we're calling Why Narrative Therapy? And we put out four questions, started to answer them ourselves and then thought it would be wonderful if um, people could join us and it wouldn't have to be with a well recorded on video it also can be just on people's iPhones uh, their responses and we would put them up um, on this YouTube channel so that's another thing people can do come be part of this or connect with us in some way I discovered when Maggie came last year I hired a filmmaker to come and we filmed her first two days of teaching. Out of that, over the long Vermont winter, I've taken the edited films. Along with Maggie, we created a course that we're calling an Introduction to Rich Story Development. It has six lessons in it with topics. Each one has really incredible video and it's linked to this discussion forum. When we launch the new website in the beginning of September next week, uh, that's the course that's beginning up. So we hope that people will get involved with that as well. We have another course that Charlie Lang put together on uh, queer counseling and narrative practice. And then I put together the initial course, Narrative Therapy, Foundations and Key Concepts. And that, in some ways, we were thinking sort of like a prerequisite course, although you, nobody has to take it. But it, it's good for uh, people who are new to narrative practice. And it's also good for people who want a refresher. All of these are now available for continuing education credit. But now we're looking for ways to get them into curriculum for actual programs. Mm -hmm. So if anyone has skills that on our new website there's a place that for volunteers, whether it's video editing or audio editing or technology or just enthusiasm or, uh, or people have any resources to uh, donate, everything that we're, uh, we're really learning as we go. And now that we've been through our seven years, I think we are, um, we're kind of uh, gelling in a beautiful new way. your question that Shoshana Simons said what keeps you inspired well I'm surrounded by inspiring people I'm just constantly and there is little difference between the inspiration I get in the therapy room to the inspiration I get from my circle of friends and family 
to the inspiration I get from my colleagues, uh, my friends and colleagues who I've met through the narrative community. They're all uh, constantly with me. I'm inspired right now by living with my uh, son and daughter-in-law and their baby here in, in Berkeley. I, before I left, I have a very close friend in Vermont who's uh, living with ALS and was diagnosed, I mean, two, two winters ago, we were cross-country skiing together, and now I'm helping her get 24-hour care and uh, helping her get from her chair into her wheelchair to get to bed at night. Um, and she inspires me. She wrote to me while I'm here and said she was about to get a foot massage from, uh, from a neighbor. And she said in her email, so see, it's not all bad. <laughs> in thinking about like uh, this modern, modern lifestyle in 2015, I heard a quote that jo- Joanna Macy quoted somebody else. Where she said, things are getting... Uh, worse and worse and better and better, faster and faster. So many people I know and care about are so uh, spread out and distant and sometimes very busy. And, you know, and even in the Bay Area, there's not even a lot of common spaces where people can go and just meet neighbors. It's like you pay for services, you know, and how do do we kind of reweave this sense of community? Michael White uh, said something about richly development of the subordinate storyline provides people a foundation to take further action, you know? Also, kind of weaving of community provides people a foundation to take further action. And you mentioned that with, with the mothers, like some of the things they most appreciated was being connected to other mothers, too. And it's that sense of community is allowing us to build a foundation where we can keep growing and the narrative therapy community keep growing. I'm just appreciative of that because, you know, it's been a struggle, I think, uh, to develop community in narrative therapy, which is not so dominant in a lot of the professional mental health social work circles. So it's a, it's a different way of um, developing community than if, you know, I had a model that just fit in with lots of other social workers or therapists. So I just want to say that and appreciate all, all that you're doing. Um, to develop that because I think it's really important to me and it's really important to the people that I talk with that we're all kind of thinking how do we develop the community and how do we keep it vibrant and keep good conversations and collaborations going and also what's important to me too is for these new people too how can they have a sense of that Um, how can they have some of the rich conversations that I had and they're not just having to figure out through through books and, and writings, you know, but they have some people they can talk to um, that are accessible to them. I want to um, say more, but I first want to pause to ask you, Will, what inspires you? Well, I think good conversations inspire me, you know, and uh, music inspires me. Those are the two things I, I draw a lot of inspiration from and keep coming back to refresh and refuel with good conversations and good music. <laughs> I heard that last Sunday in L.A., Kathy Adams uh, put on a gathering. She calls it a POMO gathering. And there were 70 people, and they had to turn people away. I I believe this is a new resurgence of energy. Hmm. What keeps coming to my mind hearing you is this sense of keep at it, keep finding your people, I think for me, living in Vermont has really helped in that 
there really isn't the illusion there, you know, of thinking that I have the community professionally. I, I don't, you know, so um, there aren't the bodies there. So um, I knew I had to look beyond. I kind of let go of uh, being mainstream. I mean, I'm a licensed psychologist. I, I do take some insurance, you know, I need to speak the language and to keep those kind of ethical considerations in mind that that are in the code of ethics that I that I need to follow and I feel a certain sense of responsibility to not only be with sort of my tribe but to be somehow creating building bridges and uh, creating dialogue you know with others who may be inspired by other approaches I've written several articles, each of which took me a long time. It was fun to reread that one you mentioned and be happy that um, I liked the way it sounded. And you get a few years later and you forget all the effort that went into it. And I, I remember Lynn Hoffman saying when I asked her in her mid-80s when she wrote a paper, you know, asked how many drafts did it take? and. She, she had this twinkle in her eye, and she said, well, about 50. And that was so freeing for me, because later you, you realize, oh, you know, it formed itself. It takes as long as it takes. And I think the same with creating community. It takes as long as it takes. So I learned something. I wrote one book, uh, Reauthoring Teaching, Creating a Collaboratory. At the very end of that book, I thought, oh, this is sort of about technology in teaching and ways that uh, we can bring uh, technology that are congruent with narrative practice. Maybe I should start a website. <laughs> and, um, and so um, Shell, my husband, had helped me think of the name, Reauthoring Teaching as being a take on reauthoring conversations. And I love the idea of creating a collaboratory, being ways of kind of using I mean, we didn't invent that term. Uh, scientists use it a lot in particular, I think, but ways of using technology to meet globally or wherever, you know, geography doesn't matter, to work on shared projects. So at the end of the book, I was like, yeah, let's create a website. What should we call it? We're like, what about reauthoring teaching? So I looked it up and I thought, well, what's the URL? www.reauthoringteaching.com and that's the birth of that you know but what I was wanting to say is in the course of writing that book I was going on walks with a friend who's a writer beautiful editor and writer and also a therapist who's from the psychoanalytic orientation and she would read what I had and say huh she'd ask questions like she'd say I get that you're telling these stories of students who were so enthusiastic um, about narrative practice and um, in your classroom and, and that there was this kind of sense of, of all like learning together. Well, what about the students who had questions and what about the people who, for whom this didn't resonate so much? I thought to myself, well, no, this was, we had this great shared experience and she said, well, you know, if they weren't saying it, you probably didn't create the space for them to speak up. <laughs> and I thought, ooh, that's probably true. Because I am, 
in case you hadn't noticed, I have a, um, an enthusiasm, and I've learned to enjoy and appreciate that, and I'll, to be with people who like my enthusiasm. Um, but I have learned that that can be problematic, too, and to make room for the conversations that also include the questions and the other orientation. And I'll say the same with her review of my book. She'd read a chapter and say, you know, psych I don't think that psychoanalytic approaches are quite what you're describing here. That it, it's, I understand that you're wanting to show that there are other approaches, but um, we have a very rich history too, you know, and it's not uh, just stuck back in Freud. It's kept growing, and a lot of these relational approaches that you're speaking about, you know, are, are also important for us too. We've been influenced. So, it's, so that's another way of saying that building community is really important, and it's also really important to keep to me, to keep having conversations with people who are inspired by different ways of thinking. Becky Pizer from Berkeley asked, sent in a question. Uh, I'm going to read it for you. It says, um, I'd be interested to hear how Peggy and her colleagues stand up to dominant ideas about expertise, both in terms of practicing from a narrative position and also in terms of ongoing professional identity shifts, especially in relationship to academia. Also, I'd be interested to hear how she positions narrative ideas in relation to generational shifts regarding where expertise comes from, and how so-called scientific knowledge relates to other kinds of knowledge, including pressure to define evidence and what some see as a growing questioning or dismissal of age-related knowledge. More simply stated, I'd be interested to hear about some of the challenges to narrative teaching she's encountered and how she's navigated them. Wow, that, that's such a, a wonderful, in-depth question, and I, I will be thinking about that after we finish this conversation. So the first thing, I guess, is that's a lot of food for thought. And I imagine that those of us who teach narrative practice, especially in academic settings, or to uh, am also more involved in some ways in the continuing education world now, that these are, these are really questions for us. Also, those who are wanting to preserve the future of narrative practice were kind of newer to the world of research than other approaches and happy to see that um, some work is going on in that area. We are in a very expert-driven era now um, and also of evidence-based practice. I think there's some interesting work that people are doing to find other ways of thinking about drawing from some of that scientific knowledge and at the same time highlighting um, experience knowledge. I did learn, as we talked earlier, 
uh, when learning at the kind of feet of mothers of infants, uh, no matter what we might say about what is important in child development, say in infant development, and what research said is important, it all came down to what was important to that particular family. So uh, there is a room, a lot of room, for experience knowledge, I think, in the teaching. I found that I would bring in, uh, learn some ways to teach that I think to bring people's stories, not just stories of their lives, but how to elevate experience, um, how they might, br- I would bring in their writing, say, into a teaching classroom. If Becky's interested to see, I have a couple of chapters in my book, Reauthoring Teaching, about that. But I think most of all, in response to her question, is probably what we were talking about earlier in our conversation. These are challenging times not to position ourselves as oppositional to scientific knowledge and and the contribution and to evidence-based work, but rather um, to be finding people who share similar convictions as ours and to be supporting each other because it's not easy. thinking of a context in having just spent time with Sue Ellen Hempkin, and she's written this wonderful book on the art of narrative psychiatry. And we've talked about how she can bring her ideas and practices into the world of psychiatry. And she's been met, you know, with some real challenges, I think, although people who once they hear what she has to say and the the richness of the approach see it differently. I was saying to her, if you want to go to the American Psychiatric Association, bring us with you. You know, we've got your back, Um, whether that be virtually or we'll go in the hotel room and wait for you while you go down and make your presentation. And I think the more we can be creating a community where we can have each other's backs and at the same time not get smug about, you know, about what we have to offer, I think it's important for us to show that these ways of working do have great value and that we want to support people, graduate students, for example, who, um, who want to develop narrative skills. One of my hopes in reauthoring teaching, and this gets back to something you said earlier, Will, about how can we help, one of the less developed areas of the website so far is we've created a whole tab on higher education. And my vision is to be able to pool together different people who are in higher education institutions who, um, who are asking the same kinds of questions that Becky is and learn from each other and create learning modules also. Let's say someone's teaching a family therapy survey course and they have to do something on narrative therapy, but they don't know narrative therapy. They think narrative therapy is just about externalizing conversations and, um, and letter writing and helping people tell their stories. And they shouldn't necessarily know about it because it's not their field. But if they could go to that website and grab a learning module or two from people who are teaching and some videos. I just feel confident if there are people like Becky who are out there who are kind of determined to to take seriously that uh, decentered, influential positioning, not only in relation to the people who come to consult us in our offices, but in relation to our students, that we can really make a difference in people's lives. I do think about 
you know, interns who are really excited about narrative therapy, and they may have a supervisor who throw out lots of you know critiques about it from a more from you know, their their lens. And it would be nice if they had a place to go when they hear some of these things that they can talk about them or hear other people's responses to these kind of critiques so they don't just kind of weaken people who have this growing interest in the work. So I like the idea of having a place for, you know, commonly thrown out critiques that you can go and hear some responses to. But there were times where I was confused, you know, when someone give a critique, well, isn't it important that you show evidence to what you're doing? And it's like, yeah, I, I guess it is. You know, it is important to show evidence, but, and yet, to only look at what's called evidence-based practice um, and say that's all we're going to do and try to apply that to some local context. Um, I, I don't see that working out when that's tried a lot sometimes. It seems like uh, it's so restrictive and so constraining on what we can do in the local context that is it really helping the way this research paper showed that it should help? And it's interesting, my my responses are often in the form of story, and I guess that that's what we do, isn't it? And I, uh, because I'm a, a story embedded in context, you know, and as we're speaking, I'm staying, as I mentioned, I'm surrounded with the world of babies again right now as a grandmother. And uh, I was remembering, as you were speaking, when I worked uh, with families with infants with with disabilities and I was uh, had gone back to school because I realized I wanted to learn more what other people were saying about what helps I'd learned a lot incredible amount from families and I was studying early childhood special education and I, I learned from the literature that when working with a family with a baby with Down syndrome that um, what was most important was language development because that was going to be the delay that would stick. And the sooner we could get in to be working with language, the better. And there was all sorts of evidence about that this was the most important um, skill to work on. Out of that grew a program called Ready, Set, Go, which was about language development. And I remember going in to visit a family uh, with a toddler who wasn't yet walking um, and whose language was very delayed and he had Down syndrome. And I talked to the mom and said, look, you know, um, I know this program, Manoli, I still remember his name, I hate to say how many years ago it was, 35 years ago, Manoli will walk, you know, but um, while we've got some time here, uh, can I just share with you some of the things that this program has shown me is really going to help his mm -hmm. talking. She kind of listened and she said, you know, yeah, but let me just tell you something. Um, uh, Manoli is like 30 pounds and he's not yet walking. He's really heavy to carry. And frankly, until I get him walking, I don't have a lot of energy to focus on, uh, on language uh, in a very systematic way other than what we're already doing. And I really thought about that afterwards and thought how our research and our programs are very helpful. They guide us. But people's unique situations and their priorities are really what need to guide our work. Well, I think I'm taking from this conversation just a lot of inspiration about community building. And uh, there's a 
I think the first page of People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, he talks about how history is often written as a story of great individuals rather than great movements and great communities. And it's easy to to see people and think of them as great individuals, and that's why they're able to do great things. But what were the conversations and the communities and the networks that enabled them to be that way? I'm inspired by the work you're doing around community building and what Dulwich Center is doing around collective narrative practice and just where the energy goes in my life it seems to be going more towards community and working on the set of relationships that people live in rather than the individuals themselves you know it just it's kind of affirming that it seems like a good direction that a few some of us are are, th- are thinking about and moving towards yeah I just feel that energy growing in this conversation helping to grow it as well and more and more people out there putting energy in this direction to wonder what's going to happen <laughs> and what, what Mike White might think of some of these new developments, right? <laughs> yes, could you just say that Joanna Macy saying one more time? Yeah. So Joanna Macy quoted David Corton, who said, things are getting worse and worse, better and better, faster and faster. I suppose... This conversation is an ongoing conversation, and we could keep going and going, and I love that. And at the same time, maybe that's a good place to end. Yeah, so thank you so much, Will. I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you, Peggy. Um, Could you say if someone wanted to contact you, say the website again, any other ways they could contact you? Sure. Um, Reauthoringteaching.com is the website. Come have a look. Will has gotten involved in something we're calling the Collab Salon, and uh, that's the one I mentioned earlier. We meet L.A. or or San Francisco time, 2 o'clock the third Sunday of the month for about an hour, and what I didn't mention is we record that, and so if you can't make it, you can always watch the recording and whatever slides and presentation the uh, presenter gave. We've got the three online courses. You can see the contact information for me there. And uh, you can just contact me through reauthoringcollaboratory at gmail.com as well. It's always a joy to hear from people who share an interest in these ideas and uh, we spark that interest in each other. So, uh, so you've, you've sparked mine today. Big thanks to Dr. Peggy Sachs for joining me in conversation and sharing her work. You can check out reauthoringteaching.com for information about her online courses and collaborative salon, which I attend almost every month. I'd love to see some of you there. And if you've got ideas or initiatives about developing narrative therapy community in the San Francisco Bay Area or online, uh, send me an email at www.sherwin at gmail.com www.sherwin at gmail.com and started the show off with a great horned owl and the idea for using animal sounds in podcasts comes from Derek Jensen's show Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network all the rest of the music I made using loops from GarageBand Thanks for listening.